Good morning. Good morning. Glad each and every one of you are with us today. Um, as most of you know, we've been going through a series through 1 Corinthians. We've taken a couple little breaks from that at different points along the way for different reasons, sometimes for a holiday or for a special guest coming into town. Um, last week, we uh, went through 1 Corinthians chapter 13 on love, and we talked about how that passage, though often used at weddings or to talk about marriage or things like that, uh, the context of it is really in the local church, and that love has to be the atmosphere of the local church. It has to be a priority of the local church, that we love God and that we love one another. And in this last week, I've been um, thinking a lot about that, and I haven't really been able to get away uh, from that thought and our, our need to press into that. Um, and so instead of going into 1 Corinthians 14 uh, this morning, I'm going to sit and talk about transformation and love and how those things work together and a few things that can hinder that um, and that can really hinder transformation in individual lives and can really hinder um, a local church from fulfilling its mission um, in Jesus. And so I uh, want to talk about those things this morning. Um, you know, the nice thing about having a, a plan as we have a plan to teach through the books of, you know, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you know, straight through. Um, the good thing about having a plan is that then, then you're able to call an audible. <laughs> you're able to say, hey, we're going to do something different um, today and we can adjust our plan. Uh, that's one of the things we talked about um, as elders when we were talking about going through books and, you know, teaching the pros and cons of teaching, you know, right through a book is that sometimes um, where you're at in, in a particular book isn't speaking to what the church needs to hear at that moment and that we need to be open to the Holy Spirit and to the direction of the Holy Spirit to, to be aware and to listen of when we need to vary from that, from that plan, from that structure. Um, so we want to have plans with our lives, but we always want to hold them loosely with flexibility, knowing, giving God the, that he, knowing that God has the right and the authority to change those at any given time. And so that's a principle as we teach through books of the Bible as a church. It also has to be a principle for our lives. That, yes, Lord, this is the direction we think you're taking us in, but as individuals and collectively as a whole, we're always willing to alter that as you lead, as you direct, as you guide. Um, and so we need to keep that flexibility uh, even when we're pretty sure and firm on what God, the general thing that God wants us to do. So let's pray, and then we'll jump right into this. So Heavenly Father, we love you. Uh, thank you for your love for us, God, the love that sent Jesus for us. And this morning, as we think about that more and um, its implications for our lives and for our church, Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, to fully grasp, or to maybe not to be able to fully grasp, I don't know if we ever will, but to grasp more and more the heights and depths and width and breadth of your love for us, dear God. And that that would cause in us just a great desire for personal transformation and to see transformation in our church and in our community and in this world, Lord, for your glory and honor. And may you receive all the glory and honor, God, for every good thing that comes out of this. And Jesus, may we know how far you were willing to go in your love for us, um, even this morning. And may that inspire us, Lord, to love you and to love one another and to love those who don't know you yet. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, so, you know, calling the audible comes from a sense of that we collectively are not exactly where we should be as a church. 
I want to say that up front, that it's, it's, it's not like, hey, we're going to call it Audible because we're doing so great. We're calling, you know, calling it Audible because we see a need, and, and that was kind of amplified as we talked about love um, last week. Um, when there's a couple of verses that, have, that really speak to my heart on a consistent, space, consistent basis about transformation and what our lives should be like in Jesus, and I know they're familiar to some of you at least, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Um, these are, you know, I don't know that they're my favorite verses in the Bible, but, you know, it's okay to have favorites, and, and these are definitely in that category of favorites. Um, so Romans 12, 1 and 2, we'll read it first from the NASB. It says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what is that, what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, let's go back up just a little bit there. There's that urging, brethren, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, in view of God's mercy. And really, as you look at the book of Romans, it's really about God's, God's mercy. And so in view of God's mercy... Present your bodies or present yourselves as a living and holy sacrifice. Remember, he's making allusion to the Old Testament sacrifices that were, you know, killed, you know, and, and made as a sacrifice before God. And then Jesus being that perfect lamb who was killed as a sacrifice for us, but obviously did not stay dead, but rose from the dead as the grave couldn't hold him. But then um, that we are not, you know, we're not to... Uh, kill ourselves or to be killed as sacrifices, but we're to live as sacrifices. We're to live a, a sacrificial life, a giving of one's self, a giving of one's life to God, which is your spiritual act or your spiritual service of worship. Worship is more than just coming together and singing songs. You know, worship is is giving worth, ascribing worth to God. And we can ascribe worth to God with how we live our lives, that we worship God with our, with our lives. And certainly in a very specific sense, we come together and we worship God by singing and praising and praying and all of those things. Um, but our whole lives are to be in, given in service to God. And that is a testimony that, God, you are worthy. You are worthy of our lives. And so what's necessary in, in order for this to happen? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed to this world. And so what is being said here is that you know, the God of this age, Satan the enemy, has a way in he, which he wants things to operate in this world, and that operates according to the sinfulness of human flesh. And we see it all around us. You know, everything in front of us is, you know, it's sin, sin, sin. You know, all the time, this rebellion against God. And this promotion of the kingdom of darkness. And it says, you know, we're not to be conformed to that. We're not to, we're not to be conformed or made in the same shape and likeness of the world around us that is dark and sinful. But instead, we're supposed to be transformed. And how are we transformed? By the renewing of your mind. Because 
our minds have this crazy ability to take in um, information and then to adapt its thinking towards that information. And it's so important, you know, what we read, what we see, what we talk about, all of those things shape us. You know, understand, you know, many times you go into a situation and you're thinking, okay, by reading this book, I'm going to take information and I'm going to use it. But have you ever considered that sometimes the enemy will take a book and use it to change your mind and to conform the way you think according to his thinking? Inputs are so important. And if we are not on guard about our inputs, both in what we take in, but also in how we take it in, we have a tendency when it comes to, the, to printed things to believe printed things. Even if, whether it's a book or internet or whatever. You know, we, have, we kind of joke around. It's like, well, I saw that on the internet. So, of course, it's true. Right? We joke about that. But we have, even when it comes to printed material, well, it wouldn't have been printed if it didn't have you know, validity. And even fictional things, even things that we know are fiction going into it can affect how we think and our attitude and how we operate. If you don't think that your mind is not malleable to what it is taking in, I don't necessarily encourage this, but an experiment would be just to put on a particular genre of music and listen to it for a whole day straight and how that would affect your thinking. Just flood in the country. Just flood in the country music. Just overdose on that. And then how would that change your thoughts? You're going to be sitting there talking about pickup trucks and shotguns and you know, beer in the back of a truck and you know, whatever else. You might. You know, if you go into it, just kind of like a, it can kind of take me where it wants to take me. So we have to be renewed in our minds. And how are our minds renewed? They can be washed by the Word of God. The reading of the Word of God, the meditating on the Word of God, hearing the preaching of the Word of God, having conversation about the Word of God, studying the Word of God, prayer, you know, fellowship with those who love the Lord, conversations and trying to um, explain the gospel to people who don't know the Lord yet. All of those things help to renew one's mind and give one focus of what's important. And it's a filter. Well, the Word of God is so, so much of the time it's a filter to where it filters all the other information coming in and says, this is garbage, this is garbage, this is garbage, and eliminates it. But if we go through our lives without focusing on the Word of God, then we are living without filter. How many days can you go without the filter? It's just kind of like, you know, it's bad enough to, to ingest like a bunch of fast food, but then imagine if your body had no ability to eliminate the parts of it that were harmful. That's kind of how we live life sometimes we're not, when we're not in the Word. It's like we're just ingesting Garbage, but then we, without the proper filtration to get rid of it. So this morning I'm going to talk about three things that keep us 
from transformation that can kill individual growth and can also kill local churches. Um, the first one is pride. First one is pride. So pride is it's primarily an attitude. It's an attitude where a person or a group of people think more highly of you know, oneself or themselves than they should. Okay? It's a desire for the glory that should go to another, particularly the glory that should go to God instead comes to me. But sometimes it's even the glory that should go or the praise that should go to another person comes to me instead. Desire to have somebody else's place. Think of Satan's pride, wanting to be God. That was ultimately his downfall. Think of the sin Satan tempted Adam and Eve with. You will be like God. It's sourced in pride, putting ourselves in a higher position or thinking of ourselves as better than we are. Still in that Romans 12, verse 3 says, For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. When you understand how little you had to do with your life, and yes, you have responsibility for it, but you didn't decide what family you were going to be born into or what time in history you were going to be born into or what culture you were going to be born into or what nation you were going to be born into and all the circumstances that go along with that and how different your life would be had you been born in a different place. It's a little, it should be humbling and to recognize the good that you have in your life is not from yourself. You didn't really have anything to do with that. But now you've been, good, been given stewardship of it. And that's true whether you, know, you were born with, into a good situation with a lot or born into a situation with little. But even as we think about that, even as followers of Jesus, we can be tempted to think that, man, to be born into a wealthy family, to be born into a free country, to be born you know, with every advantage for education and opportunity, like that's what you know, being born with privilege really is. But let me tell you, if you were born into a family where your father and mother loved Jesus and wanted to follow him, then you were born in a place of most privilege. If you were born in a context where you actually had opportunity to hear the gospel, you are born into a place of privilege. And with that comes responsibility. But regardless, to know Jesus now means that you are a person of privilege and you have something better than what the top 1% of being an American could ever be. You know Jesus. You're a child of the King and you are given eternal life. And you have a future and a hope that goes well beyond this world and what is here and now. But in all of that, we are prideful and we are sinful if we view ourselves as deserving any of it or in viewing ourselves as, you know, we're so much better than because we have. When we need to be viewing ourselves as one, as stewards, given a great responsibility. And now the question is, how do I use that for God's glory and honor? And not just waste it 
on myself. From James 4, verse 1, where do wars and fights come from among you? They, they, do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? You know, we think of jealousy as a bad thing a lot of times, but need to understand God has a right to be jealous for us because he made us. And if you are a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, it means that, you know, Jesus has... Well, he, he died for all, but it's a put to your account because of faith, grace through faith, right? And so then to live differently from that, yes, the Spirit of God is jealous, rightfully so. You know, you can't, you know, if, if, my, if my wife were to see me flirting with another woman, she would have a right to be jealous. Why? Well, first I get punched in the face. But she'd also have a right to be jealous because of the, the vows that we've made to one another. The two have become one, right? But, but guys, listen. You like some other girl, and she's talking to somebody else. You don't have a right to be jealous. If you haven't put a ring on it, haven't said your vows before God, you have nothing there. No right to be jealous. You understand the difference? One jealousy is correct and the other jealousy is sinful. But God has a right to be jealous. He has a right to be jealous because he owns us. But notice this, but he gives more grace. Praise God. (laughs) He gives more grace. But therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Is there resistance in your life from God? If there is, it's usually because of a source of pride. God gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. You know, there are times when we should just be joyful in God. And that's right and good because we're right where the Lord wants us to be. But there are times where we want to be joyful in God, but we haven't taken the step first to draw near, to repent, to cleanse our hands, to turn from our sin, to weep about our sin, to be in mourning and to humble ourselves so that he can lift us up. We kind of just want to lift ourselves up to that place where then we're in a place where we can, you know, worship and enjoy God. But that's his role. If, If there's sin there that needs to be turned from, we need to do that first. And, and that's what we need to understand. We t- you know, there, there's a word, uh, I think it's misused a lot of times or not really understood a lot of times, that term repent. What does it really mean at its core, at its basis? It's to turn from one thing to another. 
So when it comes to salvation, repentance is turning from what you used to believe in, turning into trust from trusting in yourself or some other you know, religious idea to, to repent from that and to turn and believe in Jesus, that he died for your sins, that he rose from the dead, that he is the way of salvation and the only way of salvation. That's what repentance is in, sal- in salvation, but in the, the life of you know, growing in Christ, that continuous transformation that be, should be taking place, there's often a need for repentance. But repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. There's supposed to be repentance is I'm sorry with change, with turning from that and turning from that sinful thing and moving to what honors God. To, take, to put the sinful thing away and in its place, put the thing that pleases God. Or to remove the attitude that's displeasing God. Say from an attitude of bitterness or from an attitude of entitlement to an attitude of thankfulness and joy. It's not just a matter of getting rid of one attitude, it's a taking on of another attitude. We understand that? You're not, we're not just empty boxes. You know, we're going to be filled with something in our hearts and in our minds. We're not going to be left empty. So it's not enough just to say, Lord, I'm sorry for that. It's a, I'm sorry from that and I'm turning from that and I need you to fill me with what is right and true and good. There's a replacement that has to take place there. You know, and pride plays itself out in many different ways. One of the ways itself it plays out is in pettiness. And that things have to be done exactly to my liking or the way that I want them or I'm going to throw a fit. But that pettiness comes from what? Pride. That I'm better than and therefore I deserve things to be done according to my liking and my way. Regardless of what God wants or regardless of what's better for the people around me, it has to be this. Pettiness has its root in pride, and so do many, many other sins. So that's one. And I'm going to go one more, more negative, and then slightly negative positive, and then really positive. So just bear with me, okay? Just, just hold on. One more negative, because um, pride is obviously a huge neg- negative. You know, and again, we, we live in a world that amplifies that, that sort of sinfulness and promotes it. You, know, you, don't, you don't usually find um, you know, people advertising their um, companies or their sports teams or even themselves or anything in life with humility. Let's go... You know, let's go with bulldog humility. You know, we don't, don't know. You see what I'm saying? Don't, you know, it's bulldog pride. We don't go bulldog humility. You know, we don't. We don't. You know, normally operate in that framework because the framework of Jesus is so contrary to the framework of our world, and our world is so insidious that sometimes we participate in it in such a way fully and don't even realize what suckers we are. We don't even realize it because it's so insidious. It so becomes a part of us. And you can argue there's good pride and bad pride and all that sort of stuff. But there's a line there, and it often gets crossed. It often gets crossed. To the point of, I don't care who else has to pay as long as 
um, or what I want is still number one, or still wins, or whatever the case is. Okay, so second negative thing, sexual sin. And this over this last year, because I'm thinking back 2014 kind of a, as a whole, and I think about the number of times I've been disturbed by inappropriate postings or likes of things of a sexual nature on Facebook by followers of Jesus. People saying, I love Jesus on the one hand, and then are promoting sinful things on the other hand. And what is that? That's a being conformed to this world, not being you know, transformed by the renewing of the mind and just accepting these things as just normal and okay and, you know, what, what, why else would it be anything be any different anyway? And promoting that sort of thinking and the activity. And the part that's kind of terrifying, terrifying about that is if that's been made, being, what's being made public, what's being viewed and what's being participated in privately, if there's no shame for the things that are more than questionable, then what is going on where there is still some shame? Either through computers or the mind or through other people. And never forget, I mean, as we talk about the public part of that, but never forget that even what's done in shame and what nobody sees does affect the whole body. We get convinced, we get in our mindset, oh, this is this sin I'm currently kind of caught up in. It's, it's only about me. It's only hurting me. That's a lie from the pit of hell that your sin is only hurting you or you and one other person. It's so not true. It affects Absolutely everything. Regardless of what type of sin it is. But particularly sin of this nature. But don't let the enemy trick you and deceive you into think you're only hurting yourself. The thing about the Facebook stuff, the, the part about that that really is troubling is that invite, it invites others to participate in that sin. Hey, you like this too. You look at this too. And, and that's bold and reckless and shows a hardness of heart. You know, sexual sins is one of, those, one of those things that destroys local churches from the inside. It destroys from the inside. And so we have to be very careful there, and we shouldn't ever take that any, type of, any type of sexual sin lightly. And I think that's where the confession for the whole church needs to take place, is that so often we view those things as not that big a deal. When they are a big deal. When they are a big deal. 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. We get that? I mean, that's, that's good news right there. That's powerful. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. Meaning, we all have these same sort of struggles. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. You can never accuse God and say, God, the situation was too great for me. And I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. 
He will make a way of escape. With the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. There is a way out. There's always a way out. And sometimes that way out is just calling on the name of Jesus. Jesus, help me. And removing, you know, call on his name and remove yourself from whatever temptation, whatever situation that is. And that's true whether it's sexual sin or any other type of sin. Call on the name of Jesus. Remove yourself from the temptation. Ask for accountability. Ask for help. Call a more mature brother or sister in Christ. Or just somebody who's not struggling at that time with that same thing that you are. And with that, you know, I need to say, I, I feel like I need to kind of say this to address some generational things. For my generation, I got married kind of late. I got married 27, about, yeah, okay? And um, I'm going to be honest with you. Human body, not meant to wait that long to be married. Not meant to wait that long for sexual relations. It's just not designed for it. I'm going to go ahead and say it. Just go ahead and say it like it is. So, hold on. Oh, we were laughing. Okay, well, let's get it all out. Let's get it all out. Go ahead and get your laughing out. Okay, maybe how I said it. Partially. Relations, yes. Okay. Um, but I want to throw something out there. That, you know, for my generation, that was a a little bit late, but things have already moved on. I mean, it used to, you know, in times past, even in this country, it was people getting married, uh, you know, when they were done with high school or a year or two, you know, after that. And then it became, you need to go to college first. And so, you know, we're going to wait till, you know, 22 or that. And then it's become, you know, wait for you're done with grad school and had a few years as professional and this or that. But are we not still sexual in nature? And so that is causing a problem and begging a pro- for a problem. And, and it's kind of bought into this world's way of you need to have accomplished X, Y, and Z. You need to have gotten a college degree. And now a college degree isn't all that it used to be. You, you need either more experience or you need you know, a master's degree and then you need more experience. And then you can think about, you know, because you've got to have all these settle, things settled down and you've got to have how you're going to provide and this and that and the other thing, you know, to the nth degree. And so, you know, when are you actually ever going to be able to get married? Now, if God has called you to singleness, that's not a big deal. Praise, the, praise God. If you're saying, I'm single because God wants me to be single, more power to you for that. And we've already talked about that in the book of 1 Corinthians and don't need to rehash all of that. But if you're saying, I'm going to keep being single because I have this agenda. I have this agenda. Then you need to ask and have some serious conversations with God if you're on the same page about that. If you're on the same page without that. Being married is good. But don't avoid that because you don't want to have a bad marriage like your parents had. Or because you're being lazy and want to avoid responsibility. Or that you're believing a lie that you do have to accomplish X, Y, and Z. Or that you're just not willing to give anybody a chance because nobody could possibly be good enough for you. Hey, back to the pride. Okay? Can we just throw it all out there? And so, you know... The questions you need to ask, 
when you're thinking about, is this person material? I mean, yes, there are certain compatibilities that are important. But primary question number one is, does this person love Jesus? And question number two is, do I see this person continuing to love Jesus for the long haul? Question three is, you know, can we take a road trip without killing each other? Something like that. (laughs) All right? Like, I mean, you understand what I'm getting at? And all those things are not... All those things are not um, hard or, 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 or not easy. All those things are not easy. Sorry. I'm going to say they're not, they're hard. they can be difficult. They can be difficult. Okay. But generally, what I'm getting out there is no particular situation, but rather an attitude of a generation, an attitude of a culture. And so that's when I talk about, when we go back to Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world. Do you understand that sometimes you are being conformed to this world when you don't even know that you're being conformed to this world? That you're making your decisions not based on what God has for your life and what God has for his church, but you're making those decisions on what's, based on what's popular to do in your culture at this point in time in history. And that that is influencing you greatly. And we've talked about this before, but there's a reason growing up in the southeastern United States, most people are fans of American football. And while that's the number one sport in our you know, nation as a whole, but particularly in the southeast, and why college football dominates. I mean, there's reasons for that there, you know, that are bigger than you are, that are bigger than, I mean, than, than many of our just natural likes and dislikes. And if you had grown up in Brazil, it wouldn't be that way. You would be different. You would like kicking a ball around with your feet. You just would. That's just how it is. And you can't say, well, no, not me, because I see the support, superiority of American football, blah, 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 blah. It, not hardly, pal. You're driven by it. And that's the power of culture. And so we have to ask those questions, especially when it comes to these bigger things about marriage and family and, you know, like, am I going to be conformed by the culture around me or am I in conversation with God and using the Word of God as the filter to decide what's right and wrong and good? for my life, for the life of our church. We get that? That's number two. So there's some negative in that, and there's some positive in that. But I want us to take it all seriously and go, Lord, you're worthy of us striving for purity in our lives. And that's true whether you're, and, and, and don't let me miss the boat here on this, that's true whether you're married or single. It's not like married people don't struggle with sexual sin. You know, I have all the time. Oh, well, you know, once I get married, I'm not going to be struggling with porn and, you know, stuff like that anymore. Please. You don't get a handle on that now. It ain't going to change just because it's illegal for you to have sex. It's not going to change one bit. Until you repent of it and turn from it and have an attitude in the heart change about it. Don't be a sucker into thinking that you know, just through natural changes in, in life, your sin's going to be dealt with and handled and taken away. It's not how it works. There has to be that dealing with God and establishing a new way of life.
So that's two. The third thing is the mishandling of transitions, and sometimes these transitions are good and sometimes they're bad. We all experience you know, many transitions in life. Some of them are, are good, some of them are bad, but all of them have the, uh, the potential and the power to disrupt our walk with Jesus. Get that? Most of us understand how bad transitions are challenging and that we need to support one another in those and that those can have a negative effect on our walk with the Lord. If you know, we, lose the love, we lose a loved one, um, you know, we all understand the need to be there for that. The loss of a job, the loss of a relationship, or some other traumatic event, we all understand the need to love one another and to be there for one another in those situations, right? But I'm actually going to challenge that our good transitions can be toxic to our walk with Jesus. A blessing can turn into a curse. Sometimes a blessing can turn into a curse. A new job, getting married, a newborn, graduating, all of those are like things that we celebrate, right? We celebrate those things. Yet, they all take a lot of, of mental work. They all take a lot of emotional work. Some of them take a lot of physical work. And it's new, and whatever's new tends to get priority in our lives. The new thing tends to get priority. And so what can happen then is that that time and effort and push towards Jesus and doing him then gets diverted to something else. And that other thing is a good thing, and it's not that it's not worthy of our attention and our time and our effort. It's just that it doesn't replace Jesus and can't be allowed to. You get a new boyfriend or girlfriend, that's great, maybe. person loves the Lord and it's good for you, but... That person can't replace Jesus. You get a new job and you have, you have this, you know, this like renewed sense of, of purpose and meaning and value. And man, I'm going to get after this thing and to do this. And you're excited about it. You know, well, that can't take away from Jesus being number one in your life. Same is true when you get married or have a newborn. You know, yes, love all that baby like crazy. But that can't mean that we don't have our quiet time with Jesus. And spend time in his word. And, you know, a lot of times people have a newborn and then, well, you know, we don't want the baby to get sick, so we're going to stop coming to, you know, meetings of the church for a little bit. And weeks turns into months, and then months turns into what? Until the time we realize, oh, wait, the kid actually doesn't know anything about Jesus, and maybe we should go back. Or maybe not. Or maybe one does, one person in the couple does, and the other one doesn't. All those things, I mean, that's extremely dangerous. Extremely dangerous. And so we have to go into those transitions anticipating that it's going to be difficult. Not just looking at the joy of the new, trans- of the new thing. Not just looking at the joy of the new thing, but also looking at the traps that come along with that. And committing ourselves to the Lord first and foremost. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Transitions. Transitions. Um, our church, we have transitions on a regular basis because we live in a, in a college town with a college community, and so that means people are coming and people are going. People are coming in, and we're like, woohoo! And then, you know, you're here for four years, and you grow in Jesus, and, you know, you get to where you can actually serve and do things at a pretty good level because, you know, you've been discipled. And then it's like, peace, you know, for a lot of you, and you go out and do another thing and do other things. And, you know, a lot of that is, is good if that's, again, the Lord's will for you at that particular time. But there's always transitions in our church, and handling those well is very important for us. You know, and we're at a stage now where a lot of our college students are getting, you know, older and toward graduation. Some are saying, hey, I want to stay around and help build this and do this. But a lot, you know, God's going to call to do, go to other places and do other things. We don't need to be upset about that or frustrated about that. We need to celebrate that and give blessing as we send on. But we also have to take stock and go, wait, maybe we're not doing the best job reaching back to sophomores, freshmen, you know, that age, and we're going to, we could lose an important ministry in the church if we're not careful. So what are we going to do about that? Something to think about as we go into 2015. Okay? So we got to do something about that. There's other transitions that take place because even those who aren't college students, uh, there's a core in Athens that's just kind of here, but there are a lot of people, even professionals, who come and go over time. That's natural. It's normal. Um, it happens. Um, I'm going to give you some news if you haven't heard it already, but Greg and Rachel, uh, the Lord seems like he's calling them to another place. Rachel's been given a, a professorship, is that the right word? A job as a professor um, at Samford University. Now, they've been here about as long as anybody, at least anybody in this room, other than myself. And uh, so, I mean, there's just a very few people who have been around as long as they have. Um, and we love them deeply, and we know everything they do for this church that helps it function and move and um, be effective, you know, for the Lord. And they don't want to leave. You know, and you talk about being loyal. Nobody, nobody's been more loyal than those two have over the years. My wife has been that loyal to me, but that's because we're married, right? All right, so there's an extra buy-in there. So that does, no, it counts. It counts. It's just an extra level that she's kind of stuck, okay? She's, she has less options and less freedom than others of you have. All right? She has less options uh, without sinning. You know, she has less options without sinning. So, but, but, you know, there's been some dark days over the years in our church. There have been some dark days, and I've gone to sleep at night just depressed, you know, and, but then thought, you know, well, still have Greg and Rachel. You know, they love us. And, you know, like, I mean, that's solid rocks can be counted on. Yeah, and there's been times where other opportunities seem like they might be coming up in the past, and I've had this, like, really in my gut, like, uneasy feeling of that's not good. And this time with this opportunity, I don't have that at all. I have joy for them and excitement for them. I'm going to miss them like crazy and wor- wish that it was the Lord's will for them to continue to be here and to do their thing here. But who are we to argue with Jesus? And, you know, I, I mean, in my gut, in my heart, I feel, yes, this is from 
the Lord. But I want to tell you something here as confession in years past, there at least would have been the temptation in my heart to manipulate a different outcome. And that based out of a lack of faith. A lack of faith that God's not going to take care of us or that this is all going to fall apart or this isn't going to work. Or the church can't survive without person X or out couple A and B. Okay? Lack of faith. Lack of faith. And I have had to come to grips with the Lord with that and shed tears to him about that of sorry I have not trusted you like I should. So we want to celebrate that and believe God that he is faithful and that he's not abandoning us or putting ourselves, our church in a position where it can't do his will and fulfill his mission. You know, part, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a good side, sometimes there's a good side and there's an ugly side of the same thing. There's a good side to believing that, that Jesus has a purpose for us and that he's not finished with us and that he wants to accomplish certain things through this church and that we need people in order, you know, a church is people more than anything else. It is people and you need certain people with certain giftings in order to accomplish the mission that Jesus has given us. And so that's the good side, to believe that. But there can be an ugly side that wants to manipulate outcomes because we believe in the vision, but we don't believe in God's way to accomplish it. And we believe it has to be done in a certain way or with certain people under certain parameters. And so there's a lack of, there can be a lack of faith there. And with a lack of faith, guess what? It's impossible to please God. And it's impossible, I mean, that's what Scripture says, without faith it's impossible to please God. So we have to take our trust off of any individuals to accomplish the mission of Jesus, even in the church, which we value so much as family and view so intimately. But it's not based on you or me or any one of us or any one of us particularly it is based on Jesus, though, and what he can do yeah. and what he will do. And so we need to be people of faith. And with that, whenever you have key people that, that leave, that means that there's responsibilities and that there's gaps and that there better be people who are maturing in their faith and are ready to step into those roles and we transition those things well. So thankfully, with them, we now have seven, with Greg and Rachel, we have seven or so months to make that transition and opportunities for other people to step up and to step into those roles. Who's it going to be? And how are they going to do it? With what heart and motivation and purpose? So be happy for them and celebrate. Also be ready to do what needs to be done, right? And I'm going to go ahead and say this. I hope nobody is ever angry with them or bitter at them because, again, if anybody's been loyal, it's them. And I don't know that any of you have more invested in, like, the personal side than, you know, myself and my wife have with them. And if we can celebrate and be happy for them, then you better be able to get on that ship. (laughs) You get what I'm saying with that? You can have your initial oh, no, because we all have that. 
But beyond that initial, it needs to be joyful and celebratory. And we're going to keep working with them to see that stuff in Tanzania happen for God's glory and honor through Jesus, right? Okay. So they were, and they're not going to be that far. They'll be visiting us often. We'll make them. Okay. Amen. <laughs> All right. So there we go. All right. But again, with this comes down to this key idea that God loves us. Go back to Romans 5.8. But God shows how much, us how much he loves us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but has everlasting life. God's love for us is to be the basis for our being, for our knowing, for our doing. God, that God loves us has you know, to, to be rooted. We have to be rooted. We have to be rooted in God's love. Our identity has to be in who are you? You are one who is loved by God. How do you know that? Jesus went all the way to the cross for you. That's your identity. At its core, at its fundamental being, there might be other things that are there. You're a man, you're a woman, you're a husband, you're a wife, you're single, you're whatever. You've got this job, that job. You have these spiritual gifts. You have these natural abilities. You have these experiences. But all of that is secondary to this fundamental idea, truth, that God loves you and that Jesus' death on the cross proves that he loves you and that that is your identity, that you are a loved person. And so many of us, so many people in this world, have a void in their identity because of a lack of love that they even rightfully expected to receive from someone. I watched this little documentary on, documentary on Brian Bosworth, known as The Boz, back in the 80s. And he was the first, you know, like, really famous football player on, you know, national television scene that people love to hate. And he made himself into this, you know, villain so that, you know, for the, all the attention and everything that came, that only Oklahoma fans love the boss and everybody else in the country, you know, hated him. And he played that. Even when he went to play professional football, he played for Seattle and playing Denver. He talked trash about John Elway. And there are 15,000, you know, fans in Denver wearing no bozo with his face on it. And where they buy those T-shirts from? From his company. Okay? Got a little something up there in the noodle. But there's this scene with he, in this, you know, uh, storage locker, storage unit with his son, and he's looking through all these clippings that his, that his dad had kept. And he said, you know, life is more than a bunch of clippings. And that no matter how many touchdowns I scored, or no matter how many tackles I had, I could never make my dad happy. It was never enough. And he's weeping. And so there's that lack of love that most of us have because we live in a broken you know, world and we're surrounded by broken people. And sometimes those broken people fail to love us as they should. And sometimes we fail to love others like we should. But there's no lack of love in God. And so our identity, what we've always known we've needed, but sometimes we've looked in the wrong place for, is that God loves us. 
and that's the core. And it doesn't mean that those other things, that other lack of loves don't hurt, but it does mean that Jesus is big enough to fill all of it. He's big enough to fill all of it. Remember how often Jesus asks questions, how he asks questions all the time, right? If you read the Gospels, it's Jesus, you know, Jesus says a lot of things, but he, he asks lots and lots of questions. And what questions would he have for us this morning? Here are two questions that he might ask us. One is, do you believe that I love you? This morning, do you believe that Jesus loves you? The second thing he might ask us is, how are we responding to his love? He might say, how are you responding to my love? That's a question that Jesus might ask based on his character and other things that he says in the scriptures. I think that's a reasonable idea. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me and who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 1 John 5, 2 and 3, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So as we close up 2014 and head into 2015, especially as we consider the incarnation of Jesus, that's what we celebrate you know, at Christmas, is that God loves us so much that, that Jesus, the, you know, Christ, the Son of God, you know, puts on human flesh and comes and lives among us, sinless, perfect, dies on the cross for our sins, pays our debt, is risen, ascends back into heaven, and will return as king. And in light of all of that, in light of his love and his practical love as demonstrated to us, are we willing to embrace that, to let it transform us, to end this 2014 by confessing our sins, being renewed in our hearts, putting away the simple things of the flesh, including putting away the self-condemning and the condemning of the enemy. Just put it all aside. There's Romans 8.1, and we love this verse. It says, therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God, right? Amen. But there's also the second half of the verse but sometimes we ignore or don't think very much about who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So anticipation is, you've been loved by God, you recognize your faults, you recognize your sins, you repent and turn from those, you live in and embrace the fact that, that, that you're not under condemnation, and then that causes a change in how we live life to one who walks in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Do we get that? That it doesn't end with just, Jesus, I'm th- Jesus, thank you for forgiving me. But Jesus, help me to live in a way that honors you and to walk in the Spirit. Notice it says walk in the Spirit. There's the implication there, your flesh cannot do it, and you cannot do this on your own, but that you must have the power of God active and operating in your life. So we need to have our hearts and minds renewed by Jesus himself. So we enter the new year, Lord willing, that he gives it to all of us and that we
have that opportunity to continue to serve him here on this earth, that we enter fresh and whole and renewed and ready for what's next. That we don't just float through and piddle away the grace of God and the gifts of God given to us and all that he's entrusted us with in our church to be, that's to be used for his glory and honor. But it has to start first in each heart. And if there isn't change and transformation there, the rest of it doesn't matter so much. We can't you know, we just kind of like drag every, all of us along. Jesus dragging us all along toward his will. That doesn't sound so great. We'd rather walk with him. We'd rather believe that he loves us and respond to his love with love. We can't do that without obeying, without, without striving, humbling ourselves and striving to be obedient to Jesus. We can't do it without that. Yeah, we talk about the mission of our church is to make disciples who make disciples locally and globally because we know we're sending people out. But can we make disciples without obedience? Can't do it. Can't be done. Can't be done. And obedience can't just be out of a, well, we have a responsibility, we have to, or fear or guilt, because all of those things are such temporary motivators. They'll motivate you for this afternoon, maybe tomorrow. But by Tuesday, it's gone. The only thing that can motivate you for the long haul is love. That's love for Jesus. To live the life for Jesus for the long haul, the only thing that can motivate you for that long haul is love. Embracing his love and responding to it. That's it. And whenever we lose sight of that, whenever that's not what's most important, we've lost. We've lost. There are many other important things, but in pursuit of those, we can't lose love. Got to have it. Jesus, we're thankful that you love us, that you proved it at the cross. Help us to respond in obedience. As we take the bread and the cup this morning, we give you thanks and we say, Jesus, renew us, forgive us. Lord, help us to do business with you and to lay our sins before you. So your word says that you, when we do that, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I pray that we'll do that, Lord, and that we'll receive it. And that in your strength will be different. We won't be slaves of sin. We'll strive to live in obedience will hate what is evil and will cling to what is good. And help us, Lord, we pray. In your name, Jesus. Amen.